I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Lisa Rosenbaum, a cardiologist at the Philadelphia VA Medical Center and a Robert Wood Johnson Clinical Scholar at the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Rosenbaum has co-authored a perspective article on improving patients' adherence to medication regimens. Dr. Rosenbaum, you note in your article that under the Affordable Care Act, there are new financial motivations for physicians to help boost patients' adherence. But there have always been good reasons to try to ensure that patients are taking their medications. So what's been done in this area previously? Well, it probably first needs to be said that, as everybody knows, the problem of medication non-adherence is quite complex. So not only because asthma is different from heart failure, but because the reasons people don't take their medications are often unknown and certainly differ person by person. So because of that, I've come to think of the problem of medication non-adherence sort of similar to the way I think about the violence associated with gun control, meaning there's no one-size-fits-all solution. So while it'd be well and good to make it impossible for people to own guns, if that's your opinion, and to improve the services for mentally ill and better our school systems, etc., no one approach is going to fix the problem alone. And I think, similarly, there's no one-size-fits-all approach to non-adherence. All that said, no matter all the interventions sort of can be grouped into various categories, no matter which disease they're targeting. So there are educational approaches. For instance, people have used mailings to try to educate people about the need to take beta blockers. Those have been a little bit effective. There are interventions that use a lot of feedback and reminders. So for diabetics, for instance, feedback about their glucose control and reminders to take their insulin. There are those that try to reduce the complexity of the regimen. So for instance, like using blister packaging, which a lot of patients really seem to like to set up their meds for the week, or even trying to streamline their regimen so that their dosing frequency is reduced. Um, And then of course, there are multimodal interventions, which combine any of those. And not surprisingly, multimodal interventions tend to be a little bit more effective than those that only try one approach. Um, But unfortunately, all the interventions we have in our arsenal are sort of only modestly effective. Um, I have had the luck to get to work with a bunch of people at Penn who are doing some really cool things, I think, in this space. Some of my mentors at Kevin Wolpe and David Ashley have actually written for you about this idea of theirs called automated hovering. Um, And basically, they're, they're premise is that even the modestly effective interventions that we have to improve adherence involve pretty intensive personnel to call people and remind them. Um, And these interventions are not only costly, but they're tough to scale. So what they're trying to do is sort of explore ways to not only use the technology that all of us have at our disposal now, like cell phones, text messaging, things like that, but also to harness some of the principles of behavioral economics, like social influence and lotteries and things like that to try to see if we can better help patients take their meds in the 5,000 hours they don't spend in front of us. Um, And actually, Judith Long has already had some success using this principle of peer mentoring among uh, African-American vets with diabetes at a VA hospital. Basically found that if you give patients basically a buddy for six months, um, they had a pretty um, significant improvement in their hemoglobin A1C. So I think that those interventions um, are sort of the next wave, and we'll probably learn a lot more in the next few years about how we can all start using them in our practices. One further reason why patients don't fill their prescriptions is cost. How big a contributor do you think that is, and are there any new approaches to resolving that problem? 
Yeah, so there are data on cost, and then there's what I think. <laughs> so data suggests that about a third of Americans don't fill their prescriptions uh, because of costs. And there are certainly studies to support that, suggesting that, for instance, variations in rates of prescription filling are associated with the degree to which patients are covered. So I think there's certainly merit to that. I also think that part of the reason we talk a lot about costs is because we can all wrap our heads around it. It's a practical issue and, you know, we can't get rid of side effects, we can't fix patients' memories, but we can create a system theoretically where costs are removed. So I think we all want to go after it. And there was a big trial looking at this, which you published, I think, in late 2011. I call it the MI Free trial. Basically, it was a trial. Actually, Will Shrank, my co-author, was one of the principal investigators. And what they did is they randomized some like 6,000 patients post-MI to either uh, usual care or to have their co-payments removed for beta blocker, ACE inhibitor, and statin therapies. And so some say, well, it was a negative trial because they really looked at hard outcomes. The primary endpoint was a composite of vascular events, including revascularization. And so in that sense, their primary endpoint was negative. But they did find that they were able to improve adherence by about 4 to 6%. And they also found that the intervention arm, there was actually net cost savings, but that finding didn't reach statistical significance. On an individual level, what do you as a cardiologist do when a patient tells you that he or she can't afford the medication? That's a really tough one. I think it can be a real conversation stopper because, you know, who am I to say, well, even if I can iterate all the reasons the patient should be taking the medication, that he or she should be spending his money as I advise. But I think that there are certain things we can do. I mean, we can all clearly do a better job prescribing generics. Um, for instance, generic statins cost about $4 a month as opposed to $25 for the brand. So I think that there's something to be said for that. But to get back to sort of this cost issue, I think it's important. And if I could sort of come up with only one thing that I could do, it would be remove copays for everybody. It just makes the most sense. But I also think sometimes when we talk about cost in relation to adherences, it's similar to the way we talk about malpractice in relation to overuse of tests and that there are lots of reasons that we order tests that we probably shouldn't order. And similarly, I think that there are lots of reasons that patients don't take their meds and cost certainly is a factor, but I think there are lots of other factors that are probably more psychological and equally important. Has any research been done to identify particular drugs, particular classes of drugs for which adherence is better or worse? Yeah, so I guess one caveat is just that the whole nature of adherence research is fraught because measurement is so inherently flawed. So we traditionally rely upon pharmacy claims data. Those are sometimes the best we can get, but even if someone fills his or her prescription, you don't know whether they're actually taking their meds. Um, I think the MI Free study, they used a medication possession ratio, which seems to be pretty standard. I think as technology changes, we'll be able to do more and more in terms of daily pill use. You can always look at patients' blister packs. Self-reporting, though, is, is often flawed. But to get back to the question, so some of the best data actually came from the MI Free study, which I mentioned before. I thought the most striking finding from the study had less to do with the amount they were able to improve adherence, but actually with how poor the adherence was at baseline. What they found is, I think adherence was about 35.9% for ACE inhibitors, 45% for beta blockers, 49% for statins. And of course, in the intervention arm, adherence improved about 4 to 6%. 
So that gives you a sense of the relative numbers. There's not that much difference. But actually, one finding that was really interesting, Plavix was not among the medications that for which copays were removed, but that adherence to Plavix was about 70% in both arms, which is obviously much higher than it was for the other medications. And so part of your question you asked, has anything been done to figure out why you know adherence might be different for these different classes? So my own sense from patients, and again, this is unfounded and is more of a hypothesis that needs to be tested, is that, for instance, people can't tell you why they're taking a beta blocker after a heart attack. They don't say like, well, it reduces my oxygen consumption. But the antiplatelet agents, people refer to them as my blood thinner, is very viscerally powerful for people. They get it. They say my blood was thick and now my blood is thin. And if they get it cut and they bleed, it's almost like positive reinforcement. And I think it's very interesting. And I think it also sort of raises the question of whether there are other ways we can sort of invoke something that is more visceral for people to make them understand why they're taking their meds. I don't know what those ways will be, but it certainly has me thinking. In that regard, do preventive medications have lower adherence rates than therapeutic ones? Yeah. So the best data I've seen on this issue has been on statin therapy. I think maybe 2005 or so, there was a big study published that looked at the difference in the use of statin therapy among patients who've had an acute coronary syndrome versus those who have chronic coronary artery disease versus those who are using it for primary prevention. And the differences were pretty stark. I think, well, still, there's a low baseline rate of adherence for everybody. 40% of patients were using their statin who had a heart attack, 36% for those who had CAD and 25.4% for primary prevention. So you see about a 15% difference. And certainly this mirrors what I see in practice. I had a conversation two days ago or so with a patient about, you know, trying to get him to start a statin for primary prevention. And he basically said to me, Doc, if it ain't broke, don't break it. And I think that this idea of how it is so hard to convince people to do something when they're not already sick, And does that account for 15% of medication non-adherence in primary prevention? Perhaps. I don't know quite, though, how to address that yet. Another issue is is side effects, which patients will point to as a reason for non-adherence. And you mentioned in your article the risk of overemphasizing potential side effects, but sometimes they are real. How do you think that problem can be addressed? come to mind. One is, you know, since I've started paying more attention to adherence, I definitely sort of, in my clinical work, talk to patients about this a lot more than I used to. And one thing I've found is that, for instance, it used to be that prescribe a medication and I wouldn't see a patient for six months at least. And then you ask about the med and they tell you they haven't been taking it. And they stopped like two days after because they had a side effect that was intolerable. So one thing I found, and I can't prove that this actually improves adherence, but it seems to at least engage people is say, okay, let's make a game plan. So if I give you this ACE inhibitor and you have a cough or whatever it is that might be, you know, let's talk in a week. We'll check your labs. You know, that gets them to sort of come back and have something very concrete to do. And if there's a side effect, then we'll try a different ACE inhibitor or a different antihypertensive or whatever it might be. So I think that helps the patients know that you're not just dismissing their concerns about side effects because they're certainly a really big deal. And then the other thing I think that often gets lost in a lot of these conversations and sort of is very hard to know how to address with patients is that 
everything has these inherent trade-offs. So yes, there might be some myalgias associated with statins, but statins also have life-saving properties in the setting of a myocardial infarction. So it's hard to know, and that's part of what I wanted to get to and can't go too much in depth in the perspective itself, but how much do you point out the potential side effects? You don't want them. You don't want to mention them, and everyone has aches and pains already, so how do you help people discern what is a statin-induced ache and pain from what they had before? That's tough. But I do think as much as possible, you try to emphasize the benefits without dismissing their concerns. In your article, you describe an approach implemented by Community Care of North Carolina, which included having clinical pharmacists reduce the complexity of patients' drug regimens. So should regimens routinely be streamlined, especially for patients with chronic conditions? I mean, of course, the answer is yes, as much as possible. I mean, we know that if, for instance, you give a patient a drug four times a day, adherence is about 40% lower than if you give them a once-daily drug. So I think that we all should try to do the best we can to give patients once-daily drugs, whether that, I mean, for me, it's giving them Topral, giving them Lisinopril, things like that. So I think that's one approach. As far as I think one of the challenges is that patients often come in on a host of medications and because they're seeing so many specialists, each specialist is operating independently and can't touch the meds prescribed by the other specialist. So, you know, one can only do so much in terms of streamlining. Given that complexity of providers, whose job should it be to simplify the complexity of the regimens? Well, I guess... I mean, like anything in in medicine, it's everyone's responsibility, which might mean that nobody's doing it. You know, I think it would be really ideal if for, you know, our most complex patients, and I mean, I I guess this is what case coordination is in essence, is for the five or six docs who are taking care of any patient to sort of convene once every six months or once every three months or once every year, whatever it takes to sort of ask which of these medications can go. How can we make this easier for the patient? You know, we all are living on email now. It's something that wouldn't require face-to-face meeting, but that might be one approach. I think pharmacists are probably as skilled at this as any of us, but the problem is, you know, the pharmacists too have to depend on us giving the thumbs up or thumbs down. So there's a, a lot of chain that links in the line of communication. So I think the best would probably be to get the physicians to get together. I think this often falls on the shoulders of the primary care doctors, but also they have to depend on the specialists for input. So it's a real challenge. You raised in your article the question of how to gauge in advance a particular patient's likelihood of taking a prescribed medication. So do you have any hunches about the answer to that question? So it's funny. When I first started studying and thinking about adherence, that's exactly what I wanted to do. I had come across the work of this a professor of psychology named Angela Duckworth. She's at Penn and was a teacher and now is a psychologist, but she basically came up with this idea of grit, this grit scale, as a predictor of which kids in school are going to succeed and has basically come up with this, maybe it's 12 questions or so, what you can ask people that is far more predictive of how well they'll do than IQ, for instance. And it's not just, you know, their grades, but how well they do in college, et cetera. And so I want to do something similar for medication adherence. And there's some irony in this because one of the questions on the grit scale is how much you persevere with an idea when there's some challenge. Um, And as soon as I started understanding the complexity of medication adherence, I basically gave up on this idea. But I think that's because unlike grit, it's not like we can ask 
when you face a setback, what do you do? So many of the psychological factors with pertaining to why people do or do not take medications are just inscrutable to all of us. You can ask people, do you worry more about what happens today than you worry about in the future? Do you think that other people are likely to have a stroke, but you're not likely to have a stroke? But these aren't things that come readily to people. So I think part of the challenge lies in just identifying the factors that would be protective. And then the next challenge lies in trying to combine those factors in a way to create a scale and validate it. And then the final challenge, which is the same faced by, you know, even those who can predict grit or for something like a coronary calcium score, which we know predicts higher risk of cardiovascular diseases. So what do you do about it? Let's say we can come up with a scale. Does that make it easier to address those factors? So it would take years and years to develop, and I haven't totally given up on it, but I think that we'd still be left with a kind of a big so what question. And then to go back to sort of your initial question, the reason I included it in the perspective is more to show that this is a real challenge and we have to be very careful as we use these incentives and hold physicians more accountable for adherence that we really don't neglect those physicians among us who care for these patients who are least adherent and hard to take care of and don't create disincentives for them to keep doing what they're doing. And that's what I really worry about most with this. And I don't think that we have a good way to predict adherence right now. So in the face of all those challenges, what can an individual physician do right now, case by case or practice level, to improve their patient's adherence? So there's probably some irony in what I'm about to say because some of the other things I've been thinking about have less to do with adherence and more about how we're thinking about patient satisfaction. And one of the, if you look at some of the satisfaction surveys, the one for the patient-centered medical home asked some questions like, when you talked about starting or stopping a prescription medicine, how much did your provider talk to you about the reasons you might not want to take a medication? When I read questions like this, I get so irritated because I wonder, you know, how can we be asking physicians to both practice evidence-based medicine, which requires that we prescribe certain medications for certainly in the setting of a myocardial infarction, but for other indications as well, and then asking physicians to ask patients whether or not they want to take the medication. But in answer to your question, I think that's precisely what I would advise is not in a prescriptive way, like, do you want to take this medication? Because if you don't, then you don't have to, but really trying to get to know the patient around this. Have you taken medications before? What's it like for you? Does, does, do anything, does anything about it worry you? Have you had problems in the past? Do you have a routine around it? How do you remind yourself? What do you do if you forget? Do you have someone you trust who you think could help you? Do you know how to reach me if you have a problem? Things like that. Again, this is just purely speculative. I can't prove to you that this works. But I do think patients at least being engaged in this way, knowing that you care, knowing that you're not just the big enforcer trying to tell them to do something they want to do. And then I think it makes it easier for them to come to you if they have a problem. Thank you, Dr. Rosenbaum.